Thanks everybody for coming tonight. Sorry that we started late. Um, <clears throat> we are in the middle of our shiur on Piyut, and we are holding, last week at least, we covered the Piyutim of the Hasidei Ashkenaz. Now, the really the Paitanim of the Hasidei Ashkenaz, such as allegedly of Shlomo HaChasid and of Yehuda HaChasid, and the Belezer Okeach, or of Kolonimus Hazakein, <clears throat> and we looked at how their worldview shaped the Piyutim that they composed in the 12th century in uh, in uh, Germany. Now, tonight, we have to continue talking about more Paitanim, but when it comes to Piyut in Ashkenaz itself, that really comes to a close. The, the, the generation of Piyot comes to a close in the 13th century with Marami Rottenberg, as well as, I think, close by Rabbi Yosef Tovelam in France. So those... I had two ways to go. Either we could have discussed the French and the Maram, or we could have discussed the 12th century Italians. And for some reason tonight I decided, let's discuss the Italian Paitanim. And, and the Italian influence on uh, Piut today, because that's probably the most similar and the most relevant to the Paitanum that we've been speaking about until now. We Earlier, we looked at the Paitanum of Northern Italy, and we looked at the Paitanum of Southern Italy. In Southern Italy, um, we looked at the Achimats family, the Megillat Achimats, and all of the earlier Paitanim in Italy from the 10th and 9th centuries, before the, the second millennia, we, we, we spoke about all of those earlier Paitanim, famously like Amitai and the earlier Kalenimuses and Achimats and Silano and Amita Bashefatia, many interesting uh, Piutim and Paitanim from that era. And we also looked at, at, uh, more, at the more northern Italy. Uh, we looked at uh, the Kalonimus family in Lucha, in Luca that migrated all the way to Ashkenaz and all of that influence that it had on Ashkenaz. So it's important that even regular Ashkenazim today should understand that not all of the Paitanim which influenced their Machzor on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the Taniyot, not all of them were, were purely Ashkenaz or, or French. Some of them were even Italian and not just Italian uh, from the 10th, 9th, and 8th centuries before anybody came to Ashkenaz, but they were Italian even during the 12th. There, there are there are Paitanim from the 12th century and from the 11th century, which had a great influence on the Machzorim, the Ashkenaz Machzorim today. Tonight, I only want to discuss mainly two of them. Uh, there were others, uh, but we don't have too much material from those other Paitanim, such as, for example, Rechiel Bar Avram, uh, David Barhuna. There, there's there's a list. There's quite quite a list of other Paitanim from the Italian uh, persuasion, but we don't have enough to really uh, do a deep dive study on each one of them. Now, part of the trouble of discussing Italian Paitanim is that in order to get a better context for who these people were, we really need to understand Italy in the 11th and 12th centuries. And that's really, really difficult because our knowledge of Jewish communities in Italy all the way from the first century to roughly the 
14th century is defective at best. It is very difficult to piece together accurate history of the Jews that lived in that lived in what we would call Italy today from that period. There was almost uh, 1400 years where all most of the history is is quite defective. We don't have a clear picture of how Jews and where Jews lived in Italy in all those times. We do know, for example, uh, beginning in the time of the Tanaim in the first and second centuries, that there was a prominent Jewish community in Rome. However, how big it was, we, ha we have no idea. Um, we have gravestones from Italy uh, from the first centuries of the millennia. Some of them are written in Greek. Later, we find them written in Hebrew, and we discussed this earlier, that, that so much of this information is really uh, lost to, to time. But as you move further to the 8th and 9th uh, and 10th centuries, you begin to have a little bit more information about the Italians. And some of it comes from decrees from the kings themselves, decrees from the popes uh, to, to enforce and, and uh, let's say, lit to litigate the position of Jews that lived in Italy during that time, whether it was in the south, whether it was in the north, we do have some evidence of, of Jews there, but the information is, is very incomplete. Even though the Megillat Achimatz, this, this, this story, the Megillat this the story, or the Chazon Daniel, or other stories that ca came from, uh, from early Italy, had uh, gave us a lot of information, especially about the, the ba ba Basilian decrees from the Byzantine emperor, which caused them a lot of strife, we, we don't have enough to reconstruct accurate histories. We don't, we don't really know how big the communities were. We don't know um, exactly their position politically, economically, but we have some, uh, a little bit of some ideas. And one of the most helpful uh, places to look for, one of the most helpful places to look for this information is really in the, in, in the poems, in the actual piyutim from these paitanim of that era. It's a very useful way to see how the Jews thought about where they lived and how they understood uh, the world around them, who they were and what they were. So the first thing I should mention is that in the 11th, let, let's start here with the 11th century, because we previously spoke about our very defective view of, of the 10th and 9th and 8th century. We, we don't know too much about that era, but we do know that in the 11th century, Bari, let's, one of the southern uh, one of the southern cities in the Apulian region in Italy was the home to many Jews. And we also know that in the 1050s and the 10, I think it was the 1060s, uh, it reached its peak, there was a, I'm sorry, maybe it was the 1040s, there was a large amount of, of pilgrimages to um, Eretz Israel from various different religions, the Catholics especially, but also the Jews. In the 1000s, there were many pilgrimages to Eretz Israel. And Bari, or really southern Italy, was it was an important hub for the pilgrims on their way to Eretz Yisrael. If you were going from western Europe to Eretz Yisrael, you were going to stop in a, an important port in Italy because that was really halfway there. So there was a Jewish community there of merchants, specifically textile merchants, which uh, lived in that city, but we don't have so much information as to how well they lived in that city. It would seem that there were some persecutions, there were some troubles with the, the pilgrims that came through. 
And in the 10, I think, I'm pretty sure this was the 1040s. I should correct myself. And in, t in the 1040s, the Jews did see some problems with the, these uh, really hungry and uh, uh, hungry and anti-Semitic uh, Christian pilgrims who were passing through the area. Now, it appears to historians, and not to, not, not to scholars of Pia, but it, it appears to them that it wasn't until southern Italy was taken over by the Normans that the Jews had enough stability to build Bari and to build Otranto and, and cities nearby into centers of Torah learning. Under the Byzantines, there was, there was law and order, but it wasn't particularly easy for Jews to live there. However, when the Normans invaded and took, and I think it was 1065, and, and they took over southern Italy, then that other Christian kingdom gave a lot easier time for the Jews to live there. And this seems to be really the history of Italy in general. The, the Jews came in small numbers. They were there for business. They were merchants. They had an important place to play in the business sense in Italy. Uh, but did they want to stick around there? It doesn't really seem that they did. It doesn't seem that, that they ever stayed in one city for more than 50 years at a time. They constantly seem to be moving. In the late 11th century, it seems that the yeshivot settled down, and these became great centers of learning. So much so that these that these uh, yeshivot were renowned in, in the 11th century and in the 12th century by Chachamim and Ashkenaz. So for, for everyone knows that Rabbi Tam said, Kimibari tete Torah Otranto, that the yeshivot in, in, in Bari and Otranto uh, uh, gave forth Torah. And they were, you know, uh, they were centers of psak and direction for Western Europe, which is a fascinating thing. They were growing in prominence as the Shivot in Bavel uh, lessened in prominence. The Western, or really the Italian, is sort of Central European. Those Shivot were gaining in importance. Now there's a teshuva, a respondum from the Ravan in the Sefer Evan Ezer of the Ravan, which is signed by the Council of Rabbanim of the Yeshiva in Bari. One of the signers on this Teshuvah, one of the signatories, uh, one of these rabbis, his name is Elia Bar Shemaya. Now, Elia Bar Shemaya is a python of great importance, and we're going to discuss him tonight. By seeing his signature on that letter, it was clear, it seems clear, that Elia Bar Shemaya lived in in Bari, and that he was not just a Paitan, but he was also a Rav. He was also somebody of importance uh, in the community. Now, he is known uh, he is known for writing many beautiful slichot. So let's start with let's see, we have I, ha I think I have it open in front of me. It's, it's kind of funny. If you look at if you look at the uh, historian's perspective, let's say, uh, I think it was uh, Cecil Roth I was reading from. Uh, Cecil Roth has, he's, he was a Jewish historian. He has a piece on the Paitanum of, of Italy. And he mamish, he really skewers Elia Bar Shmaya. He calls, he calls his poetry lacking, having little thought or any originality. It's wearing to the reader to read. It has excess similes. But all of the scholars of Piat love Elia Bar Shemaya. They think he's the, 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 one of the greatest Paitanim to ever walk the earth. So it's, it's, I found this distinction very funny that, that, that scholars of Piat have their opinion and historians have their own. Now, he was a pioneer in many ways of, of 
European poetry, and I should say Central European and Western European poetry, in the sense that he took the inspirations of Rabbi Shlomo Habavli before him, and he refined them and he elevated them to heights that really had never before been seen in that level of poetry. Rabbi Shlomo Habavli, if you will recall, was a poet from northern Italy. He probably lived in Rome. He lived about a hundred years, if not more, before Abelia Bar Shemaya. And Shlomo Habavli introduced this great simplification of Piot. He was going to take he was going to take the classical poetry of uh, of Kalir and of Yanai and of uh, Shimon Bar Migas and and all of the earlier Paitanim. And he was going to make it simpler to read. He was going to put them in 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 in. Uh, uh, in four stanzas, strophes, and he was going to rhyme. He did really beautiful. He he, he composed some beautiful po- uh, piyutim, which are still used until this day. But Shlomo Habavli was, in a way, a pioneer, and in another way, he wasn't completely freed from the earlier shackles. He himself does have terser language. He himself does use more more complicated words. And it's not for novices to understand. It, it, is, it is beautiful. It is easier to understand than, than Kalerian-type poetry, but it's not the easiest. When you come to Relia Bar Shemaya, he refines it even more. And he puts this, this heartfelt depth, this heartfelt depth and perseverance into his poetry, which is really, um, it really makes him shine as one of the best Salicha writers to ever live. He was, he was clearly one of the um, the greatest writers of Ashkenaz, or really Italian Slichot, um, in their history. Now, he's praised by uh, Ismar Elbogen, he's praised by Yona David. Yona David was, was one of the uh, the professors who wrote the book, the, the Piute Eliabar Shemaya, on him. And it's actually a very, very great work. I, I love how well he did well, he did the uh, his synopsis of Eliyahu Shmaya. My only gripe with the book is that he puts his he puts the introduction at the end. I, I don't understand why some professors do that. They they have all the piyutim first and then and then the analysis at the end. I never really understood that. But anyway, some of the piyutim that he wrote are still in the Ashkenaz Machsorim today. Um, one of them, let me just pull it up here. I think I could share my screen. Is very famous. It is from. The fifth day of Aseretimei Teshuvah. It's famous because it rhymes, and because it just simply it has heart. It's really just a very, um, very nice. Very, you, you really feel like the you really feel the devekus. You really feel the the longing that that the writer fe- that the writer feels in here. I think it's page thirty eight in in Pute Eliabar Shemaya. Let me pull it up for you one second. This is called. Iviticha um, kiviticha. Now I wish I was asked. I never said before that I wish I was Ashkenaz. Those words have never left my mouth. But I do wish um, that I had an Ashkenaz machzor at home that was thick enough to really accommodate all of these uh, all of these piyutim that I don't typically keep around. Okay, this is for the Aseretim Eichuva. It's for the fifth day of Aseretim Eichuva. It is called Iviticha kiviticha. Let me give you an example of a Leibar Shmaya's beautiful, beautiful piyutim. Here we go. Iviticha kiviticha me eretz marchakim bekirbi shicharticha keraticha mimamakim. Right. I've hoped for you. I've longed for you. From I've ho- I've longed for you and hoped for you from from the distant lands. It's within inside me. Shicharticha keraticha mimamakim. I have um, uh, I have 
I should say, pursued you and called to you from the depths. Um, this is all obviously with an alphabetic acrostic. This is well more well known among the Ashkenazim a because it, it, of the of the alliteration. It's really the rhyming is excellent. The alliteration is fun, but the 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 heart and the and the really the the perseverance that goes through this liha is very beautiful. He's asking Hashem here, and this is interesting to give a revach to the Jewish people who are oppressed. Right? He's speaking about how all the calamities that their oppressors have given them. And what's interesting is that even though he speaks about the troubles of the Jewish people here, the he never specifically calls out his oppressors. He never says, Emperor this, or he never says, uh, the, it, the, we're being attacked by the Saracens, we're being attacked by the Byzantines. He never really names names. There are other Paitanim from southern Italy who were earlier than him, about 100 years earlier, who very much named names. And they, 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 they were nasty in, in, in their slichot, in their xerot, what all their putim that they wrote, they were, they were much more forceful. He never seems to do that. It's not clear why. It's either because the political situation was complicated, or because from a poetic perspective he understood that artistically, it just didn't make sense. Eliab Bar Shemaya had a certain artistic sense where he understood that writing his piyutim with a universal tone would just make them last longer. He seemed to just have this inner sense that if he wrote a piyut with a humanistic approach, it didn't have to come from a Jewish speaker, if it didn't have to come from a certain time, if he could write it with a universal approach, it would just last longer and appeal to more people. And that's something that few few artists, I should say, or for few even uh, pietists, would be able to really replicate. Now, this one is among his most famous. This one, even Cecil Roth <laughs> loves Enoshrima Don Bishoftecha. Enoshima Dom Shoftecha is a slicha, which is free form. It is not written with rhyme. And this is something, another innovation of Eliyabar Shmaya. He felt free to write slichot without rhyme. So raw and so, it, his, his slichot can be so raw and so real that, that it, it, they resonated and they stuck in the Ashkenazi Machzorim. So this one is for Erev Rosh Hashanah. It's also said on Erev Yom Kippur. So I believe many Ashkenazim listening to this will know about this. In some Achsarim it's Enoshima Adon B'Shoftecha, and in some it's Adon B'Shoftecha Enoshrima. Right? So basically the Piyut um, speaks about the unworthiness of man as he approaches Hashem. Like a person who is uh, who's but a maggot, Adon B'Shoftecha, Tiskor B'Roges Chanot Rachem, Bokecha Din Hashemim Levakeach, Shoga V'Feti Zakeva Atztek, Gemol Chesed B'Tobal HaChayavim. And if you look here on the bottom, He's uh, the uh, Yonah David brings all of the the references that he's making to different psukim. He doesn't use heavy midrash. He's very much using scriptural language to compose this salicha. And let me just show you the end. The only part about it that rhymes is the end, which again most people will probably probably remember. This. Poem was again is is one that that just based on its on its 
on on its humanistic and its and its real approach towards towards a penitent towards uh, towards a uh, towards looking for salicha that this 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 pute really made him stand out among all of, of the pute any of the putim he ever wrote and that's why it just resonated and left a set left uh, and left a mark on the Ashkenaz Machzor. Uh, lastly, I should mention he became known as the uh, Hasloach Haitalki, right? The Italian Sloach, and this is not for nothing. Really, he became the Italian Sloach because because of of um, compositions like this. Okay, now let's move on a little bit more. The next Paitan of this era, possibly, I think he was a little bit later, a little bit after. Uh, maybe 20 years later than Rabbi Leah Bar Shmaya. They might have known each other, it's not clear. Was Rabbi Binyamin ben Zerach. Rabbi Binyamin ben Zerach was another southern Italian poet. And what's frustrating is we don't know exactly where he lived, but he probably lived in southern Italy. Sometimes he is he is known. There's I, I could not find this in time for the Shior. Uh, apparently some books are just printed once and never printed again, but he is apparently the subject of, of many fairy ta- of folk tales, really, uh, early folk tales. I could not find any of these early uh, early books in time for the Shior, but he is known as Rav Benjamin Ben Zerach Baal Shem. The Baal Shem means, like, just like the Baal Shem Tov, right, the, the word Baal Shem means that a person is a person that, uh, that this person is a person of repute, that people go to him to... I, I don't want to use the word magic, but to use Shemot Hashem for their benefit, right? For like, uh, to make a kamea, like an amulet for them. Um, these people were people of like, uh, I don't want to call them witch doctors because many of them were. That's essentially what they were. But Balei Shem were the, these individuals who knew enough Shemot Hashem that people would come to them for miraculous cures, miraculous help. Some were real, some were fake. In the Ashkenaz world, a Baal Shem was basically this, the equivalent of a Sfaradi Mekubal. And Rizrachia, sorry, Rabbi Binyamin Ben Zerach was also known as a Baal Shem. Incidentally, some scholars believe he is the first historical person to ever get that title of a Baal Shem. And it could be because of the folktales. It could be simply because of his piyutim. In some of his piyutim, he, sorry, in many of his piyutim, he uses many Shemot Hashem. And he, he calls Hashem by all sorts of fancy names from the Heichalot and the Merkava and all, all that type of literature. Or it could be because sometimes he puts Hashem Hashem as acrostics. So perhaps this is why people treated him with this reverence. However, so little is known about Rabbi Yaman Ben Zerach that even to this day, I mean, there's, he wrote a lot of piyutim, but to this day, no one has actually taken upon themselves yet to write a, a an exhaustive book on his on his uh, collection, on the collection of Putin that we have from him. I'm sure somebody will one day, in some near decade, somebody will take upon themselves the, the onus of this task. Eliab Bar Shemaya received this treatment, but not yet Rabbi Yaman Ben Zerach. Ironically, the best list I found for all of the Putin that Rabbi Yaman Ben Zerach wrote was on Wikipedia. Somebody decided on the Hebrew Wikipedia to put together a list of all of the Putin of Rabbi Yaman Ben Zerach and it's very useful, honestly, because nobody else did it. No scholar, no nobody. And so that was actually really useful for this year. So I appreciate whoever, Mr. Anonymous who, who pulled that together. Now, 
as far as an investigation into where he was from this uh, and how we know anything about him, the best one so far was done by Avram Frankel. Avram Frankel, I believe he's the grandson of Daniel Goldschmidt. He, he is a, an expert on many, many things piot, and he brought no less than 10 proofs that Rabbi Benjamin Ben Zerach lived in southern Italy. I won't go through all of them, but first of all, just... Zerach, his father's name, is an Italian Jewish name. That's that's one. Uh, the Putim that he wrote, he wrote most mostly Yotzrot and Slichot, are very much of Southern Italian uh, type. He doesn't write any Krovot. He doesn't write uh, many more, uh, many other types of Putim that were atypical of the Italians. And lastly, uh, he was most definitely from Italy because they found ten of the Putim that they have from Rabbiyam Ben Zerach. In the Cairo Geniza, and that is not true of Western European Paitanim. If somebody was going to argue that Rabbi Benjamin Ben Zerach was from Germany or from or from France, you'd have a difficult time explaining how his piyutim ended up all the way in the Cairo Geniza in Egypt. This only happened to Paitanim from Italy who were close enough to Egypt to have that kind of uh, to have that kind of incident happen, where the, where their papers papers the papers holding their piyutim would end up in in a Geniza in Egypt. Okay, so to this day, his slichot were, his slichot are still said in in the in the Ashkenaz Machsorim. The you will occasionally, if you're Ashkenaz or on Tom Gedalia, you're going to see some of his stuff. You might see some of his stuff on uh, maybe Shabbat Hagadol in some. In some I, I have not yet found that accurately, but on Shabbat Hagadol in some in some rites. And if you look at overall, many of his piyutim. It seems that he's speaking, or Benjamin Ben Zerach is not speaking of the troubles of the um, of like the first crusade or the forced conversions earlier. He neatly places him in the middle of the 11th century, like when there were still attacks by the Arabs in um, coming up from Sicily, where the Arabs would still try to conquest uh, conquer um, Italy back, and the Byzantines Byzantines were trying to fight them back. He seems to have. A, a deep knowledge of the the wars between the Ishmaelim and and the and the um, the Arabs and the Christians. Now, his again, um, he wasn't known. What's interesting is that he wasn't known to the Paitanim in Ashkenaz and in and in, in in Germany and France of his own century. Meaning, while he was alive, while he was composing Piyutim, it doesn't seem that anybody within his century took influence from him, but. The over the next century, um, his putim are found all over the the prayer books of the Italians, and then as you go forward, you find the the sidurim and the machsorim of the Germans as well begin to adopt his putim. So in Italy, they clearly adopted his putim, but not so much in um, not so much in Ashkenaz right away. For some reason, they didn't communicate right away, and then and then and then. Late, later, it did show up. So this is, seems clear that he wasn't of Ashkenaz origin, as some, as originally some had thought, but he was instead Southern Italian. Okay, so now, depending on when he lived, he might have been the first Python ever. We don't know precisely the year he lived, but depending on when he lived, he might be the first Python ever to write in Akedah. And as I've spoken of before, the Akedot are a type of slicha, it's a type of, uh, of piyut, which beseeches Hashem for mercy while uh, calling, upon the, calling upon the merit 
of Akedat Yitzchak. And let me show it to you here. I don't remember when the Ashkenazim, Ashkenazim say it. I believe they, obviously, it's probably more likely they say it Rosh Hashanah. Let me see. Is it said? I think I pulled it up in Goldschmidt's Rosh Hashanah. Machzor. But let me let me show it to you now. I'm going to, sh- I'm going to share my screen just to give you an idea of his type of piyot. Um, here we go. And this is... Here we go. This is an Akedah from Binyamin Ben Zerach. And this is on the NLI. Uh, the, the National Library of, of Israel on their website. Ahavat Ezez v'tokef chiba berit nurim zachor v'cheset ha'ava gader mishuchah b'masul netiva darach avradach v'fruishut ahava. He speaks, he goes through the, the love and the trial and the sacrifice of Avram Avinu. And then finally at the end here, Zichuto hamtsienu b'harichecha ketoret ha'areva ketzaf shakech v'chemat hashpit mibat hashoveva v'chasher kavshu yetzer v'shneim akru lev ha'ava ken yichbeshu rachamechet kasecha mimeshuva u'brachamim gedolim eileha shuva v'tomar shuva meshuva. Two other piyutim that he wrote that are still used today, and I'm sorry, I don't have an Ashkenaz uh, sitter in front of me, but I'll just list you the names of them. One is called Horita Derech Teshuvah Lebat Hashoveva. This is a, a type, of, it's like a pizmon, but it was written for Tzom Gedalia, which the Ashkenazim still say today. And lastly, um, another one I believe is Emenat Me'az Arashta Nivsvatayim. He had a yotzer for Shabbat HaGadol, it's called Iti Melivanon Kala. I'm not sure if it is if it is still said. I, I'm not Ashkenaz enough. One that I know is still said by the Eastern Ashkenazim is called Bilulei Esh Umemot. And it's an ofan. It's said for Shabbat Hagadol. This ofan is is very much said by the by the Eastern Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, if you're going to be in an Eastern Ashkenazi shul for uh, Shabbos Hagadol, you're going to hear this ofan called Belule Esh Umemot. So this is that's so much for the piyut of um, there's a, uh, the piyut of Benjamin Ben Zerach. There's a few of them published by uh, Ezra Fleischer in his book, Tfilot Minhaget Tfilot Eretz Yisraelim B'Tkufat HaGenizah. And that's so much for Eliyah Bar Shmaya and Binyamin Ben Zerach. These two very influential um, Italian paitanim made their mark and their piyutim, their slichot, their akedot, their ofanim had a, a an out, not an outsized, but a, a, a strong influence on the Ashkenaz Machzar. And I think that's a good way to close the previous Piyutim that we've been, Paitanim that we've been dealing with, uh, such as the, the Paitanim of the Crusades and the later Crusades. Although these, although these Paitanim don't, ha, didn't firsthand experience the Crusades, even Rabbi Bar Shmaya didn't, definitely did not see the first Crusades, but they clearly had an influence, a great influence on all the Paitanim who wrote during the Crusades and all the Paitanim afterwards. Now, as I said, there's a few more, I think we're okay, 35 minutes in at least, there are a few more Paitanim from Italy that, you know, are deserving of, of you know, the, what do they call it, honorable mention. Uh, let me see if I can, I can pull up the myth, uh, what is it called? It is called... Thinking. It's called the Mifrah Hashirava HaPiyut. I have it on my computer. I'm just failing to pull it up fast enough. Uh, where there's a there's a safer. I think it was Chaim Sherman wrote this in like 1937. 
Um, let me find, see if I can find it quickly enough. Date modified. Yeah, This is what it's called. It's, you could actually find this on on uh, Hebrew books. Yeah, it was Chaim Sherman in about 1937, uh, 1934. He published it in Berlin, and he has a book which we have, we've actually looked with we've looked at together before when we were discussing the Migelat uh, Achimatz, etc. Over there, he has a long list of all the Italian Paitanim, and even the ones that we only have one or two from, right? If you if you look through the this small book, he has a lot of many many piyutim. The one of the largest sections here, which is why I wanted to cover it, was this section of Emmanuel Ishromi. Now, we're not really going to talk about Emmanuel Haromi tonight, but just. To, for the sake of completion, right? I mentioned Yechiel ben Avram. I've mentioned, uh, you know, the, the the author of the uh, the Aruch also wrote um, Saputim in Italy. But if you if you speak to anybody about Italian piyut, if they're not thinking about much later Paitanim, they're going to. If they're not thinking of 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 if you tell them, if you tell somebody a medieval Italian poet, one of the first things that an educated Jew would think about would be Emmanuel Haromi. Now, Emmanuel Haromi, I don't believe deserves mention simply because he wasn't a Paitan, he was a poet. And there's a real difference there. Emmanuel Haromi was basically an Italian Hebrew poet of the 13th century. He was a Renaissance poet. And he wrote poetry and makamas, like uh, poetic stories, very much in the Arabic style, that were basically imitations and, uh, and, and artistic works written in Hebrew. And these were imitations of Arabic works. Uh, for example, he wrote in his Sefer Manuel, he has love stories that are very, uh, that are very simpler, similar to the stories of Dante. And... His uh, his work is not very religious. Uh, he might have one or two religious uh, piyutim, but for the most part, his 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 poetry is is not religious. And the one reason I wanted to mention him was because the Sefer Emmanuel, his his book, which contains all of his makamas and all of his, he even has a sonnet. Can you imagine that? He wrote a, he's he's probably the first Hebrew writer to write a sonnet, and he, he earns the the great distinction of being banned by the Shulchan Aruch in in Siman Shin Zayin. In Hilchot Shabbat, the Shulchan Aruch is speaking about things that you're not allowed to read on Shabbat. And one of the things he says, and I'll just read to you the language of the Shulchan Aruch, says, Right? So, uh, different uh, stories and parables of secular nature and works of, of erotica, so to speak, Kigon, Sefer Emmanuel, and also, you know, uh, historical things about wars. Asur lekrot behem b'Shabbat. It is forbidden to read them on Shabbat. Ve'af bechol asur, and even on the, in the weekday, it, it is forbidden. Mishum moshav leitzim, because it is, it is like being upon uh, among the moshav leitzim. Ve'over mishum al tifnu ala alilim lo tifnu al midatechem el midatechem b'dvei cheshek ikatu mishum megari yitzhara. The, the Shulchan Aruch basically skewers the 
Hebrew writings that are written for sheer artistic nature, for erotic, for erotic stories, for stories of, of um, basically of heresy. And he says anyone who writes them, anybody who copies them is Mahdi at Harabim. The Ramah is not, uh, you know, not as, 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 uh, as strict as that. For, for technical reasons, the Ramah says that, that um, only if it's written in, in, in English or in some other language besides Hebrew, would, if it's, let's say, Devrei Milchamot or if it's secular, it would only be it would only be asur if it was written in a, in a non-Hebrew language. But if it's if it's secular and it's as long as it's written in Hebrew, lashon hakodesh, then it's okay to read it on Shabbat. This is really for technical reasons for anybody who's learned to hold Shabbat. This is a, a a technical thing. But for what it's worth, Sefer Emanuel and Emanuel Haromi, although being one of the great Italian Jewish poets, was not a Python, and I thought it would be a that that would be an important note to make. So, okay, I, I, I regret that uh, the history of Italy, of Jew, Italian Jews of medieval times is very defective. We don't have enough information for me to give you a fuller picture of these Paitanim and their lives. I wish we had more stories here. Uh, but uh, for now, we will have to, we have to close this chapter on the Italian Paitanim. Next week, we might finish with the French Paitanim, maybe with Maram. And then I hope to either approach the Slichot seriously before Elul, or we're going to approach uh, the Spanish, uh, the the Spanish school of poetry in in general, because I believe that the the you know this, the the whole school of 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 the Piut of Sfarad is worth tremendous discussion and its own chapter. So we might just not have time to finish the Paitanim of Spain before. Before the holiday, so perhaps maybe maybe we'll focus on the slichot before the before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, uh, it's yet to decide, but thank you everybody for your attention and and for coming. I appreciate it, and we will continue next week.